Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be addressing how to interpret the whole chapter rather than breaking it down to particular verses. But I want to set the stage by reading from the first five verses of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night, so the evening and the morning were the first day. Once again, let's pray now for the help and the grace of God as we open up his word. Most blessed and glorious God, how we do thank you, how we do praise you, that you have revealed unto us your greatness and your power. A powerful God you are, able to speak and The worlds come into existence. You're able to speak and light bursts forth. We bless you, Lord, that just as you spoke light into the darkness and the void of the early creation that you had made, we know that you were able to speak light into our hearts as well today. And we pray that, that as we are going to be considering the whole theme of how we interpret the Bible and that we and, and how this relates to standing for the truth. We pray that truth would prevail in our hearts today and that lies would be exposed and that you would fortify us to take a stand as your people for the truth. We pray these things in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen. One of my favorite sayings that's been attributed to the reformer Martin Luther is this saying. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the word of God, except precisely at that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing him. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefront besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. Well, that he, there's one little problem with that bold statement that I just read to you. The problem is that various scholars that have tried to track this saying down have searched in vain for this saying in the most authoritative edition of Luther's works, the 121 large volumes of the Latin and German Weimar edition of Luther's works. And those that quote this saying again and again, they they quote other people that said it. And so they quote one another, but do not refer to the actual works of Luther himself. And the few that credit an original source, they cite not this particular saying, but a letter that was published in the Weimar edition which is similar but not identical. And here let me just give you a rough translation of a similar saying, where Luther says, although it does not help that one of you would say, I will gladly confess Christ and his word on every detail, except that I may be silent about one or two things which my tyrants may not tolerate, such as the form of the sacraments and the like. For whoever denies Christ in one detail or word has denied the same Christ in that one detail who was denied in all the details, since there is only one Christ in all his words taken together or individually. Well, as you can see, especially you could see it if you actually saw the words against one another, but just as you can hear, these quotations are not identical, even though these sentiments are very similar. And it appears that the quote that I read to you first is a saying that evolved over the years. And often this takes place when a story is told and then it's repeated by somebody else and 
few years later, somebody else hears the story, and on and on. You know how those stories get changed over time. Well, the reason why I'm citing the original letter, as well as the saying that has been attributed to Luther, is that, it, that, that conservative denominations are being torn apart over the doctrine that we're going to be preaching about this morning, even such as the Presbyterian Church in America. For nearly 19 centuries, all Bible believers that read the Bible for nearly 19 centuries read of the six days in Genesis chapter 1 as six literal 24-hour days. And it was only with the arrival of Darwin's theory of evolution that some Bible believers began to feel the pressure of coming up with some kind of a way to harmonize what the Bible says with what the evolutionary paleontologists and geologists are having to say about the millions, about the billions of years required to explain the fossils, to explain the geological strata and the like. I want to say that with reference to the interpretation of the days that are here in this chapter, it is impossible for me to exaggerate the enormous consequences of being wrong in our interpretation at this point. Satan knows that this chapter lays at the foundation of what everything else, everything else in the Bible rests upon this foundation. And if he can get us to think that Genesis chapter 1 is not an historical account, but instead a poetic representation that's not to be read literally, if he can get us to think that way, it's a small step to go further and think in chapter 2 that there is no such thing as a literal Adam. And if there's no little at, literal Adam, then the doctrine of the fall crumbles, as well as the doctrine that Christ is a second Adam crumbles. So the consequences of this error, they go right to the very heart of the gospel. And as this doctrine of creation is now one of the focal assaults, I believe, of Satan on the Holy Bible, if we flinch at this point, we are not faithfully confessing Christ. Our loyalty as soldiers is put to the test, I believe, at this point. And we have become like soldiers who run from the place in the battle where the battle is the hottest if we forsake the word of God at this point. We play the coward and we will allow the enemy to win at every point where the battle is either won or lost. Now obviously regarding such secondary issues like whether or not to use a musical instrument when we sing, these kind of issues you see on those we should be gracious as to uh, others that would have a different opinion that we have. But the issue that we're talking about this morning is not a secondary issue. This is a primary issue. It goes right to the very reliability of the word of God and to such cardinal doctrines as the fall and redemption. And this is why we gave special attention in our previous two sermons to the day-age view and to the analogical day's view of Genesis chapter 1. And this is why I feel compelled to spend time to, uh, 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 to address the view that we're going to look at this morning. And it's actually the view that is more prevalent. It is affecting more people in their interpretation of, the, of this chapter than the old day-age view. And I want to just say that Satan, no doubt, would tempt some of you to think and to ask, well, why is Pastor Sarver going through all these complicated debates about how to interpret this chapter? And he will seek to stir up dissatisfaction in your heart and your mind over what seems like a boring lecture. And if you're tempted to think this way, my dear friend, keep this in mind. Your pastor, as your pastor, I am being driven by a deep conviction that the battle over the Bible and the battle over the gospel, it rages hot at this very point. It is very tempting for me to bypass this issue. I'd like to get to things less complicated, things that are more story-like, things that are more interesting. But faithfulness to my Lord demands that I address this issue. Paul said to the Ephesian elders, I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. 
I want to prepare you, dear people, for the day when I'm gone, the day when Pastor Hill is gone, and when it might be what Paul said, somebody right from the midst of this church will rise up and deceive you or seek to deceive you. This morning, I'm going to address what we call the literary framework view of Genesis chapter 1. And it's my goal to be as simple as possible about this complicated issue, but there is a certain amount of complexity that's unavoidable. And so I would plead with you to try to stay with me. I'll try to make it simple as best I can, but try your, your heart, your side, to try to stay with me. And if at some point I need to clarify this afterwards, uh, give me a call, talk to me afterwards, and I'll try to do my best. But first what I want to do is explain to you what the literary framework view is. And then after we explain what it is, I want to give you uh, the uh, biblical refutation of this theory. And uh, we're not going to be able to cover it all in this sermon. I thought it would be cramming too much into one sermon to do that. And so we will pick up in our next sermon with this theme once again. But we begin, first of all, with a presentation of the literary framework view. Now this view, it's become popular among evangelicals. This is not a view that became popular among liberals that didn't even believe the Bible anyway. It's popular among evangelicals that want to believe the Bible and yet want to have an answer to people that say, well, the science says this and that. And this view understands Genesis chapter 1 to be an artistic, literary presentation of creation that is not to be taken literally or interpreted chronologically. It's not to be taken that in the order of the days, this is what God did. And according to the proponents of this theory, the creation account, it's a poetic presentation that is not arranged chronologically, but topically. And despite the overwhelming evidence that Genesis 1 is a historical narrative, the literary framework view, it dispenses with Genesis 1 as history, and instead it treats it as a literary device. In other words, Genesis 1 is not a record of what actually happened. But it's a literary framework in which God teaches us about himself, and about his power, and about how he made things. And just as with any theory, at first sight, some of the arguments, they seem very plausible. Well, let me mention to you two of the most prominent arguments. The first argument is that the days of Genesis 1 cannot be chronological without running into problems. And the proponents of this view, they start with the premise that ordinary, normal providence was at work in what's described here. This is not God miraculously doing things on one day and another. It's, it's his providence, providence overseeing the whole process of evolution and the ages and so forth. Uh, this is what God was doing. And they base this on what they see in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 5. Maybe you could flip over there. It speaks about the time before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. And they say, with respect to that verse, that Genesis chapter 2, they say, is, is retelling what's described in chapter 1, which, by the way, it is not. Framework advocates, they argue that this verse assumes that ordinary providence was at work. And they do this because it tells us that the earth was without vegetation. And the reason why it was without vegetation is that it hadn't rained. And just like you have to have rain to have crops grow, uh, this is describing something that is in ordinary providence. But without going into detail here, and we'll do so a little bit more when we actually get to that part in our exposition, let me just simply point out that the next verse, verse 6 of Genesis 2, it adds that a mist went up from the ground and watered the earth. It tells us that there was something there to bring moisture. And furthermore, Genesis 2 is not a repetition of Genesis 1. It's an account that focuses on a special gar garden that God made. And he made a special place in all the creation for Adam and Eve. 
and the perfect condition is described in which the first pair lived before they sinned. So I think it is a gigantic leap to say that chapter 2 proves that ordinary providence was at work in chapter 1. But based on that assumption that this is just ordinary providence and God just kind of, he kind of folds his arms and lets creation take care of itself and evolve over billions of years. Now based on that assumption, the framework advocates argue that the days of Genesis 1, they cannot be chronological without running into problems. If ordinary providence is at work in Genesis chapter 1, they assume, you can't have light on day 1 before the sun on day 4. And you can't have vegetation in, 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 on day three before the sun on day four, the next day. And therefore, Genesis 1, it must not be understood as a straightforward chronological account of how God created the world. Genesis 1, it is argued, it doesn't really tell us about how God created the world. That's not the purpose of it. But instead, it is a poetic, it is a literary portrayal of the glory of God as the originator of all things. And it's also argued that while the first three days have evening and morning, there are no stars and moon and sun until the fourth day. So how can there be evening and morning without the sun and the moon? It's argued that there could therefore be no literal evening and morning without those celestial bodies. But I want to say before we move on that this is just to argue like a pagan. It assumes that God is unable to provide light apart from locating it in the sun and in the moon. And this whole argument, it's also like the naturalism of evolutionists and the assumption that God is unable to keep vegetation alive for 24 hours without rain. We, we would never have any live plants in our house if that was the case. They, they would die instantly in a day. Crops would all die in a day. If, this, if their assumption is true, you see, there'd be no vegetation without, throughout most of the earth even now. Well, this is the first argument. The argument is that the order of the days can't be chronological without running into problems. But then secondly, the days of Genesis 1 contain two triads, or two groups of three. And the first of these three groups, days 1 through 3, they make up three kingdoms. And the second of these three triad, this triad, is made up of three matching kings that match the kingdoms. And it's argued that if a chronological presentation of the days in Genesis 1 runs into these insurmountable problems, then the days of Genesis 1, they must relate to each other in a non-chronological way. It's, well, they, it's, Genesis 1, they say, it is structured with a strophic or poetic type of framework. That's why it's called the framework view. There was this poetic framework to what took place. And the main advocate of this view in its early days, he writes this. Exegesis indicates that the scheme of the creation week itself is a poetic figure and that the several pictures of creation history are set within the six workday frames, not chronologically, but topically. And here, I'd like you to look at the chart. Maybe you have it on your phones. Um, I didn't assume that everybody would have it available. That's why we also wrote it out on this uh, board for you to be able to look at. And I uh, want you to just notice uh, what's included in this chart. In this chart, you're going to see two columns. In the first column are the first three days. and the second column are the second group of three days, days four through six. And I want you to notice now the parallel between the days that are opposite one another. The day one, it has light. And this corresponds to day four, which has the luminaries, the sun and the moon and the stars, etc. And there's no correlation, and you could go on, you can see day two corresponds to day five, you go straight across. Uh, day two has the sky and the seas, and day five has... The sea creatures and the winged creatures. I forgot to write the winged creatures in the one that I sent out online. But then also you'll see on the third line, day three, the dry land and vegetation. It matches uh, day six, the animals and man. 
And uh, so what we have, and we put this at the top of these two columns of, of days, we have a kingdoms, first of all, the realm of, of the rule, and then we have the kings over those kingdoms. Days one to three represent three creation kingdoms. And days four to five represent the creation kings that rule over these kingdoms. And thus the luminaries of day four, they rule over the light and darkness, the day and the night. The fish and the birds of day five, they rule over the two spheres that were established on day two, the sphere of the sky and of the seas. And then the creation of kings, the creation kings of day six, are the land animals and man. And these rule over the dominion or the kingdom of day three. And that day is the creation of the dry land of the vegetation. Except, of course, that man has broader dominion because God gave all of creation to have, for man to have dominion over all creation. So the literary framework sees Genesis 1 as a range you see not chronologically, but rather as a poem with six stanzas, and the first three stanzas creatively are put together by the author in a way that corresponds them to the last three stanzas. Now, in fairness to those that propose this interpretation, the framework proponents, they don't believe that Genesis 1 is completely unhistorical. Meredith Klein, in fact, he calls it creational history. And they argue that it simply wasn't written to be chronological or sequential history, but rather as a semi-poetic depiction of creation. They admit that Genesis 1, it's not full-fledged Semitic poetry, but neither is it ordinary prose, neither is it ordinary narrative. And so they argue that the events that are recorded in Genesis 1, they truly happen, but just not in this apparent sequence in these six 24-hour days, but rather you see over many geological ages, these various things took place, and this is just a figure of speech here, the whole issue of these six days. Well, the ramifications of this view are huge. If Genesis 1 is not concerned with how creation actually took place in a chronological way, the same thing could be argued for chapter 2 about Adam. And this view raises the question, does it really matter how God created Adam or whether there was a real historical Adam? It shouldn't be a surprise to us that that uh, some who have adopted atheistic evolution, they've also argued that it's not necessary to believe in a real historical Adam. If you don't believe in the first Adam, how are you going to believe what the second Adam came to do, the Lord Jesus? Well, I've tried to give you, in a thumbnail, a fair representation of the framework view. But now what I want to do is bring you in the second place to consider with me a refutation of the literary framework view. Now we're going to spend most of our time, I don't even know if we're going to get to the second point, but this is going to be the most detailed points of all the ones that I want to bring to you today in, in our next sermon. The first ref, word of reputation is this, the Genesis 1, it contains all the marks of chronological history, not of poetry. It's chronological history. The presentation of the days of Genesis 1 as an artistic, literary, semi-poetic framework, this affects the way this chapter is viewed. The days of Genesis 1, they're understood, therefore, by such interpreter as not being chronological, and this is contrary to the way you and I interpret any other account of something that happens over a period of six days. If you receive, for instance, a letter from somebody that gave you an account of what happened on a vacation that they just took, and this individual writes to you and tells you, this is what my wife and I and my children just did, and he tells you in this letter that on day one they went to see Niagara Falls, and on day two they went to a Cleveland Indians game, you see the traveling west. And then on day three, he spent the day at Cedar Point Amusement Park in Sandusky on, on, uh, lake, on the shores of Lake Erie. And then he tells you what they did on days four, five, and six. 
And you would understand in this deep, brief description this, that the reference to these days obviously are references to six ordinary 24-hour days. We did this on day one, this on day two, etc. And I believe that this is what we have here in Genesis chapter 1. Now there's several things that, that are here in this chapter that characterize chronological history and not poetry. And the first of, is what we've called the, the, the Wow Consecutive, W-A-W. It's uh, basically three letters that make up just actually one letter in the Hebrew language. This is a transliteration of one of these letters. And the word wow, it means and. Some pronounce it with a V, vav. But I'm just sticking to what I heard when I went to seminary, the textbook that I used in studying Hebrew. Now, historical narratives in the Hebrew Old Testament are characterized by the use of this little letter, the word and, actually, prefixed. It's hooked on to other words that are in the narrative. And historical narratives, they attach this wow, you see, to the imperfect tense verb, which tells you something that just took place. And in historical narratives, it's translated and, or then, and now. And one of the unfortunate things of the King James Version is it tries to be stylistically different. And so when a word occurs again and again and again, it tries to oftentimes give you different translations just to give variety. That's what we do when we write. But if we, if we saw the original, we would see it very clearly how, how this is so. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3, you notice, then, or there's the vow, then God said, let there be light. Verse 6, then God said, let there be a firmament, etc. Verse 11, then God said, let the earth bring forth grass. It could be, and God said, or now God said. Chapter 4 and verse 1. This is not only in this chapter, but it's in other chapters of history. And so we read, now, that's the same vow, or a vow, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. So actually there's two vows right there. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. And then in verse 2, and she bore again, this time his brother Abel. And then in verse 4, Abel also. And so on and on you go, you see, through the whole chapter, and this happened, and that happened, and that happened. That's the way in which it's written in Hebrew. And this is the typical construction for historical narrative in the Hebrew Old Testament. And this shows that this chapter, Genesis 1, is a historical narrative, just like the rest of the book of Genesis. And one of the main functions of this while consecutive, the while attached to the verbs and the imperfect, it's always with the imperfect, it's to indicate simple, consecutive, chronological events. That's the style of the Hebrew language. And this happened, and that happened, and then that happened. And this construction is almost non-existent in Hebrew poetry. You don't see this when you read through the Psalms, for instance. Now in Genesis 1, this construction occurs, this vow consecutive, it occurs in this one chapter 51 times. And if that is not to make it absolutely obvious that this is history, this is chronological history, I don't know what God could have done to make it more plain. If the intention of this writer of the chapter was to present a poetic, non-chronological view of the days, it seems very strange that the author goes out of his way to emphasize chronology and sequence, consistently using the construction in Hebrew historical narrative that is used throughout the rest of the Bible. And this is especially so when a consecutive narrative in, it also has the numbering of the days. And this took place on day one. And this took place on day two, etc. Now let's take a modern day creation narrative. And I use creation in a lesser sense, maybe I should say a creative person doing something or making something. We make things out of, out of other things. And we're not like God that can create, a, create out of nothing. But a modern day so-called creation. Suppose somebody related to you what he did on each day as he built his deck. There's his creation. It comes out finished eventually as a deck. 
And if he said this, on the first day we poured the footings and installed the posts. And on the second day we constructed the frame and the joists. And on the third day we screwed the deck planks onto the joists. And on the fourth day we built the steps. And on the fifth day we built the rails. You'd understand very plainly that you'd never dream to see that this supposed creation account with all this repetition here, and that somehow makes a poetry, some think, that you would never dream that this so-called creation account was anything but an actual account of what took place over five days. And in a similar way, Genesis 1 bears all the marks of straightforward chronological history. In the same manner, with the use of the wow, with imperfect verbs, and with the consecutive numbering of the days, the author makes it absolutely clear that he is narrating consecutive history. It's a false dichotomy to say that Genesis 1 is not concerned about how creation actually happened historically, but only concerned with about who did the creating and just giving us a poetic picture. But then there's another thing that teaches us that this is history, not poetry. And it's the Hebrew verb forms that are used. Not only this wow, which is added, one letter, to the beginning of Hebrew verbs, but the Hebrew verbs of Genesis 1, they have a particular feature that is exactly what would be expected if it was representing a series of past events. The famous Hebraist Heinrich Gesenius, he says this, one of the most striking peculiarities in the Hebrew consecution of tenses, now those tenses that go teach, show consecutive events, one of the most striking peculiarities in the Hebrew consecution of tenses is the phenomenon that in representing a series of past events, only the first verb stands in the perfect, and the narration continues in the imperfect. That's exactly what we have here. The very first verb is in the perfect, and then it says, and this, and this, and this. And those are all in the imperfect, describing something else that happened in the past. And this is further proof that the driving force behind the literary framework view, this whole driving force is not just what we have in, in Genesis 1, but it, the, the thing that drives them to that interpretation is the long-age uniformitarian geology and evolutionary biology. It's not the structure of the Hebrew text that drives that interpretation. But now I want you to notice a third thing with respect to proving this is history, not poetry, and it is the absence of important features of Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry has some characteristic features that are not here. And first of all, there is the absence of figurative language. There are no symbols here, no metaphors, no tropes. A trope is a stereotypical representation. A trope is a damsel in distress. It gives a media picture, you see. There's none of that that's often found in poetic literature. And just to, maybe you could hold your place there and turn with me to Psalm 18. And here we have a true example of poetry that has figurative language abounding in it. And yet it's describing what took place. And I want to read from just a section of this Psalm, Psalm 18. It's about God delivering David. And beginning with verse 7, this is how he describes the deliverance. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and flew. He flew upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His canopy around him was dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. Now, obviously, that is full of figures of speech. It's not, David is not meant, he, does, he doesn't want us to think that God rides around in a literal chariot, you see. He doesn't want us to think that, 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 that up in heaven, you see, when God is angry with the wicked, all kinds of fire starts to come out of, out of his nose, as if he has a physical body. It's figurative language to give a picture, you see, of God's power and his, 
his anger against those that would abuse his people. Now, a lot has been made about the possibility in Genesis 1 that the word day sometimes is used figuratively in the Bible, and therefore it might be figurative in Genesis 1. And indeed, there are in some rare places where in the scriptures the word day is used in a figurative way. Psalm 90 and verse 4, a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past. But in Genesis 1, the author makes it very plain that he is using the word day in its ordinary sense of a period of 24 hours. For instance, in verse 14, we read, Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. What is he saying? He's saying the sun and the moon, by the way which the earth rotates, there are days, and then there are months, there are years. He's describing something that's something we witness even now. It's describing, obviously, there is a use the word day in the same chapter in a very obvious way, describing literal rotations of the earth and uh, rotations of the earth also around the sun throughout a year. And we must also remember that the use of the word day in the Old Testament is overwhelmingly literal. Its figurative use is rare by comparison. And when it is used in a figurative sense, it is very clear from the context that it is a figurative depiction. For instance, we read sometimes of the day of the Lord. And um, it's in the context when Joel speaks about the day of God's judgment coming. It's about not just one 24-hour day, but period in which he comes. He talks about, uh, you know, blood and fire and hail and smoke. And he uses all these vivid pictures, you see. It's figurative language that obviously leads us to believe that when he's talking about the day of the Lord in that place, he is speaking figuratively. But in this chapter, Genesis 1, there are no other figures of speech. So the most natural way to interpret the word day is to take it literally, in conformity with the literal sense throughout the whole narrative. So there is the absence of figurative language. But then there's also the absence, I want to add, the absence of Hebrew parallelism. In Hebrew poetry, there is parallelism that is always there. The defining characteristic of Hebrew poetry, it isn't rhyme like we have. Our hymns, the last word of a stanza, they rhyme with the, the, uh, the last word of a line. It rhymes with the line that is right before it, etc. That's not the characteristic of Hebrew poetry, but parallelism is the, is the sign of it. In Hebrew parallelism, for, for example, the statements in two or more consecutive lines are related in some way. There's a relationship between them. And sometimes there is synonymous parallelism. In other words, the first line and the second line basically say the same thing. There's one statement, it's immediately followed by another statement, and they're saying the same thing in different words. Uh, for instance, turn with me to Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. And here I think the English Standard Version especially brings out this parallelism. So I'm going to read it in the ESV. Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. And you notice the ends of the lines, they don't rhyme like our poetry does. But notice, first of all, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. You see those two lines, they basically are repetition of one another. So the heavens declare God's glory, the sky proclaims his handiwork. In other words, his glory as a, as a creator. And then the next two lines, day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's revelation that comes, you see, from what God does in his creation. The daytime, it pours out a speech, it speaks to us. And in the nighttime, it also speaks to us. It reveals knowledge. So there is this synonymous parallelism, sometimes in Hebrew poetry. And then another kind of parallelism is antithetical parallelism in Hebrew poetry. And this is when the first statement is followed by a statement of the opposite. We find this, and I'll just read it to you in, 
In Proverbs 28, verse 1, The wicked flees when no one pursues, but, and here's the antithesis, the righteous are bold as a lion. Proverbs 28, and verse 7, The one who keeps the law is a son with understanding, and then the opposite, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. And so that's a characteristic of some Hebrew poetry. Opposites happen one line after the other line. And neither of these kinds of parallelism are anywhere in Genesis chapter 1. Throughout the whole book, in fact, the only time there is a, a, a snippet on one occasion of parallelism, it's when somebody's quoting somebody in a hymn. And it's in the case of Lamech's boastful song to his wives. In Genesis 4, 23 and 24, there is parallelism there. It's a little song, the little jingle that he, that he sings about how God's going to avenge him, you see, just as he avenged Cain. But he's just quoting, you see, a saying, a, a Rahim-like thing. It's not a piece of, that, that is in the context of, of, of the whole thing being poetic, but it's all historical except that quotation. But such exceptions, they stand out against the rest of the book. If Genesis was truly a poetic book, there would be parallelism everywhere throughout the book just like there is in the Psalms. And if we want to read a poetic account of creation, we don't go to Genesis. We go to Psalm 104, verses 5 through 9, where we have very figurative language and we have parallel, uh, parallelism in poetic form that describes creation. You go to the book of Job, there are also descriptions of creation. And this kind of parallelism is found from beginning to end. But then there's another item of poetry that's not here. There's also the absence of a non-linear style. Say, Pastor, linear style. Now, I never heard this kind of stuff here. What is linear style? Well, prose is linear. In other words, it's like a line that takes you from point A to point B. There's a story that gets you from start point A to finish point B. That's the way prose is. It's a story. But Hebrew poetry is non-linear. And we have a perfect example in the contrast that we have in Exodus 14 and Exodus 15. And I'll just tell you about it. We won't actually read it. But in Exodus chapter 14, we have the linear account of what happened when God drowned Pharaoh and his armies in the Red Sea. The linear account of Israel crossing the Red Sea, protecting them. It's told in story form. It starts with point A. Point A is with the Israelites terrified as they look at the sea in front of them and the armies of the Egyptians behind them. They start out, that's point A, Israelites terrified. And then the story takes place. And it takes you to point B at the end of the chapter. And there is the description of the Israelites looking at the waters covering the Egyptians. And then it says, and then they believed the Lord. So there's... A start is a finish, so to speak. A a linear story is told. But in the next chapter, chapter 15, is a poetic representation of the great deliverance of this song. And it's in the song that Moses sang. And in chapter 15, it's not told in a linear way, starting point A, going to point B. A story. The wonder of that great redemptive event is told in a non-linear style. And in the non-linear version, the historical order of the events is totally irrelevant. That's not part of it, you see. It's poetic. Now what's important is creating images and reflecting upon these things in, in a powerful way that speaks to the heart. And so poetry, it has a tendency to do that sometimes. And so these two ways of telling a very different story, one of them historical and one of them poetic, are found right there in those two chapters. Now these are just a few features of Hebrew poetry that are absent from Genesis chapter 1. Stephen Boyd has written an extensive study on the characteristics of Hebrew poetry. And we haven't gone into the whole thing, obviously, here. But among the stylistic features of poetry that he lists, and I'm just going to read you a reduced version of what he writes at this point. Among the features of poetry, he says, are are opacity. 
the sound of words and arrangement of words that contribute to a meaning. That's poetic thing. And there's balance lineation. There's, there's a parallelism that we just talked about. There's vivid metaphors, interlocutory shifts, and pronounced brevity. There's all kinds of features that he goes through of, of poetry. And then he says this, the biblical poet, he wants his readers to see, hear, smell, feel, and taste what he's experiencing. And he does this by creating vivid, unforgettable images which resonate with his readers. That's what you have in poetry. That's not what you have in Genesis 1. And here I want to make it absolutely clear that repetitive formulas do not of themselves indicate poetry. There's some people that see a repetition of the phrase and the evening, the morning, with the first day, and the evening, the morning, with the second day, that phrase being repeated, they see this as being an indication of poetry. And the chapter, it does have a repetitive structure. And this was a common device in Hebrew literature to help people memorize the Bible. Remember, everything had to be written out by hand. Not every Hebrew home could have a, a scroll that would have the whole Torah in it. And so they would memorize various passages. And this was a help in memorizing to have this kind of a structure. But this doesn't apply that the chapter is non-historical. With minor variations, there are four basic themes on each day. First of all, there's God's command. God said, let there be light, etc. Secondly, there's the fulfillment, and it was so. And thirdly, there's the assessment. God saw that it was good. And then fourthly, there's closure. So the evening and the morning were the second day. But this doesn't indicate poetry. For example, the whole book of Genesis has a structure that's repeated. We talked about the Toledot phrase that's repeated in different parts throughout the, the book. The, the phrase that's translated, this is the book of the generations of. Chapter 5 and verse 1, for instance, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And this is repeated about Noah in chapter 6 and verse 9, and then of others throughout the rest of the book. And I know of nobody that would argue that because of that repetitive structure, the whole book of Genesis, that the whole book is poetry. It's obviously history. And so having a little repetition here in Genesis 1 does not prove that this is not history. And this brings me just to one more piece of evidence that Genesis 1 is history and not poetry. And this is that Genesis chapter 1 introduces a historical book. It's history just as everything that it introduces is history. And I'm not going to have time to go over, through, over that. We're going to have to bypass that because I want to come... Before we make a few closing words of application, I want to come to our second point, and it is this, that the parallels that are proposed by the framework view don't match up very well. So we've talked about how it's not poetry, but history. But now our second argument, our second refutation, is the parallels that you see on the board there, and you, they, they, look really, they look really neat, don't they? They all match one another, looks like it's neat and tidy, but when you actually get into the whole chapter itself, there's all kinds of ways in which these days do not match up. For instance, day one, which is let there be light, this is said to be a kingdom, a kingdom of light. And the king that's supposed to rule over the day are the luminaries, and those are on day four. But you see, the light of day one, this isn't a, a kingdom. It isn't that the sun rules over the light or the moon rules over the light. These are not, this is not a kingdom, you see, that the various luminaries rule over. And for this to work, you see, the creation kingdom, it would have to be the vast universe over which those light bearers rule. The whole universe, the sun and the moon and the stars, they reign in that vast, that vast galaxy, the vast universe. But this isn't what we have here. It doesn't match up like that. But then the parallel also notice between the birds of day five and the expanse of day two. The second line of this uh, whole structure, this also is very weak. And even though birds fly in the sky, supposedly the sky is their, their kingdom, really their habitation is land. And they need the land to survive. 
But the land isn't created until day three. It's not on day two. And verse 22 says explicitly, let the birds multiply on earth. doesn't say let the birds multiply in the sky, because that's their domain. It says let them multiply on the earth. And if their kingdom was birds reigning in the sky, you'd think it would be rain. You'd be worded, let the birds multiply in the sky. Also notice these sea creatures of day five don't match up with the waters that are mentioned on day two. The waters of day two are mentioned in connection with the separation of two kinds of water, the water above and the water below. Everything was kind of a watery mass at first, but then God separated it so that there was the firmament, there was a canopy, there were clouds and so forth that were above. And it's not until day three that the sea is separated from the land. So it doesn't match up, you see, to say that the rainers over the the land are found on, let me look at the chart here. It doesn't match up very well, you see, these two two, uh, days. It's not until day three that the seas are separated from the land, and that would be the day where there would be more parallel to the sea creatures. But it isn't in that way. It isn't in this chart that, that I put there before you. Well, we could go into more details about that. I trust you can see just from this little bit that I mentioned that a close look at the supposed literary parallels shows that these parallels are really non-existent. Well, I really appreciate your being patient with me and hope that one side benefit of this has helped you to see the difference between history and poetry as you read through the Bible and some of the features of poetry. But I want to say as we try to wrap things up this morning that the real motive, I believe, of this theory, this framework theory, is the conflict between a straightforward reading of Genesis 1 and evolutionary science. That's what really drove this whole thing. It didn't come up, you see, in, in year 400. It came up in the 19th century when they began to believe in evolution. And it's not always realized how rapidly much of the Christian church has accommodated its teachings on origins to the 19th century theories of evolution, the vast ages that are required for evolution to take place. Dr. Nigel, you see what I'm saying here? We often think that there was the fundamentalist that stood for everything firm and strong against everything back in those days, but they gave a lot of ground on this issue. This was an issue that they surrendered huge territory. That's what he's saying here. And he demonstrates that the popular conception of the 19th century church leaders resisting evolutionary teaching, this isn't true. On the contrary, he says, in other areas, evangelical Christians have taken their stand on the teaching of the Bible and refused to allow consensus opinions of the secular and liberal Christian world to determine their own. So in other words, secularists say there is no resurrection. Can't believe in Jesus rising from the dead. They, they refuse to compromise there, you see, and issues like that. Yet here, he goes on to say, there has been a remarkable readiness to fall in line, irrespective of the teaching of Scripture. And then Cameron shows that as the new scientific thinking, first in geology and then in biology, began to take hold in the 19th century, biblical commentators hastened to accommodate their interpretations to Scripture. Accommodate their interpretation of Scripture to the latest orthodoxy in science. So instead of explaining science by Scripture, they explained, you see it the other way around. They reinterpreted Scripture to fit science. Now in our day, You and I need men and women that are the spirit of the Martin Luther that we mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. We need a man, we need to be men, just as he was, a man unwilling to deny Christ at those very points that would bring down the wrath of tyrants upon his head. And at times those that are standing for the truth may seem to be all alone. It seems like they're in a terrible minority a tiny band at best of believers. 
And over the years, dear people, we have had to pay a steep price in this church for faithfulness to the truth. There's been a price to pay. And you might be tempted to wonder how so many other professing believers could be wrong on these different issues. How could they be all wrong and we are right on those particular issues? We're just a little humble band. and We, we stand against what we see as being compromises of scripture on this point, on that point. Such as the literary framework we're talking about this morning. These kind of evolutionary views have swept through thousands of churches across the land. In Luther's day, there were many that thought it was impossible that the vast multitude that made up Christendom, that all of those thousands could be all wrong. And a one lonely monk named Martin Luther, how could it be that he would be right? And when he stood before the highest potentates of the church and state, all determined to exterminate Luther. You remember how he took the stand, here I stand, so help me God. Others have done the same thing. Micaiah, he was just one prophet of God. And the false prophet Zedekiah smote him, considering it to be impossible that 400 prophets could all be wrong in what they told Ahab about going up to battle. 1 Kings 22, 24. So it's one prophet against 400. But in the end, it's the word of that one lonely prophet that truly spoke for God. And the 400 false prophets that urged Ahab to go to battle were all proven to be liars. Dear people, let's settle it in our minds. Truth is not determined by getting out our calculators and adding up all the people on one side as opposed to the other. That is not how we determine what is true and what is false. Faithfulness to God, it will often mean that you have to either stand alone or have to stand in a small minority. Luther says this, I see my neighbor and the whole city, yes, the whole world living differently. All those who are great or noble or rich, the princes and the lords are allied with it. Nevertheless, I have an ally who is greater than all of them, namely Christ and his word. And when I'm all alone, therefore, I am still not alone. Because I have the word of God, I have Christ with me, together with all the dear angels and all the saints since the beginning of the world. Actually, there is a bigger crowd and a more glorious procession surrounding me than there could be in the whole world right now. Only I can't see it with my eyes. And I have to watch and bear the offense of having so many people forsake me or live and act in opposition to me. The Apostle Paul had the same view. He said, what if some don't believe? What if it seems all the Jews are not believing the gospel that we preach? He's asking there in that place in Romans 3. Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. Romans 3, 3 and 4. The issue, it all boils down to this. Do we really believe what God said is true? That's what it boils down to. For almost 2,000 years, dear people, believers that read this chapter, Genesis chapter 1, they understood it all of them in a straightforward and a historical manner. It wasn't until Charles Darwin came along that some scholars began to try to, new, to read in a Genesis 1 in a new way. A way that would harmonize with what they were reading there, with geology and with the, what the paleontologists were saying. I find it reprehensible to think that God would reveal what took place at creation and what took place in his creation of this world and everything in it. And he wrote it in such a way that the ordinary reader for hundreds, for thousands of years would read it as a straightforward history. That's the way they all read it. And he made it so that everybody would read it that way. And it takes, you see, Charles Darwin to come along in, in, the, in the 1800s, you see, 
And then all of a sudden, people now get the truth. Now they understand how to properly read it, so they think. The idea that God would allow his people to be deceived for 19 centuries by what is plainly stated here in Genesis chapter 1, and that Genesis 1 could never be understood until the scientists came along. This I find preposterous. It makes, you see, all men out to be true and God to be the deceiver. He's deceived us for these thousands of years by telling the story as if it happened like history. Dear people, let God be true and every man be a liar. Whose side are you going to take? Are you going to side with God, the God of truth, or with the lie? The last day, there's going to be a big separation. And there are going to be two throngs of people. And there are many differences between those two throngs of people. In Genesis, or in Revelation 14, we read of a great throng whose praise is so powerful, it's like the voice of many waters and the voice of thunder. And yet the music of their singing will be like the voice of many or like the, the sound of many harps playing on their harps, sweet and yet powerful, overwhelmingly moving. And the ones that are there that day, they are the redeemed that follow the Lamb wherever he goes. But there's something maybe you didn't notice last time you read through that chapter. Revelation 14 and verse 5 says this about them to characterize them. In their mouth was found no lie. They took the stand with the truth, not with a lie. That's one group. And the book of Revelation speaks also of another group. It describes those that are outside the New Jerusalem. In Revelation 22.15, we read, Outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. These ones will be cut off from God, from every blessing that flows forth from the throne of God forever. On one side are those that refuse the lie, that are committed to the truth of God. The other side are those that love and practice the lie. I hate election seasons because you hear so many lies. I'm up to my neck in it, listening to untruths. It's just, it's just nauseating. And why is it that liars get elected? It's because people love the lie. They have a heart that goes after that lie. And people's hearts, you see, are wicked. And so they go after the lie of the devil. They go after the lie, you see, of evolution and the, and the like. And on that side, they will be among those that love and practice the lie. On which side will you stand in the last day? With those you see that in their mouth was found no lie, or with those who love and practice the lie? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, we bless you that you have spoken in a way that is clear, understandable. And we pray, O oh Lord, that we would be humble disciples reading your word in a simple, straightforward manner. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would be pleased to enable us to be bold and courageous in sticking to the truth. We pray, O oh Lord, that these lies, these evolutionary lies that have deceived thousands, that have crept even in a widespread manner, even into the evangelical church of our day, Lord, we pray that you would expose it, that you would change the hearts of many that are there, that we hope are true believers, but in some way they've surrendered the truth at this point. We pray that those that are not true believers, even those that are hearing this sermon this morning, here in this room or online, that are part of that company right now, that, are, that love the lie and are not taking the side of truth, Lord, we pray that you would change their hearts to bring them to see the truth of the God that made them, the God before whom they will give an account someday, the truth of 
that God who sent his only begotten son into the world, that such ones might be saved. We pray that this day would be the day when they cross from that group that believes and loves the lie to those that, that practice the truth and in their mouth is found no lie. Help us, O oh Lord, that are in that latter throng even now. May we be faithful to the truth. May we be bold. May we have the attitude of, jo- of Martin Luther that even if everybody else, the whole world turns against us, we're not going to change our views. We're not going to forsake you. Help us to have that kind of commitment to this day. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.